Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the photographer to the stars, Mike Zagaris. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with the photographer to the stars. He's the official photographer for the Oakland A's, the San Francisco 49ers, and is a legend in the rock and roll community. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Zagaris. How you doing, Michael? Hey, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to rock and roll, as they like to say. I'll tell you what, for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, this man's probably taken more pictures of me than than my mom and grandma combined. True. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and most of them, are, I would file under tasteful nudes. Taste of tasteful nudes. All right. Nine eight in game. How many stills are you taking? How many are you going to use? You know, every game's different. Because, I mean, some games there's there's no action at all. I mean, now I probably take and I never count, but, you know, a couple thousand pictures because so many batters are going three and two before they ever swing the bat. And there's not as much action as there used to be because everybody was back in the day swinging and the ball was always in play and people were moving and there was a lot more action. Um some games I'll I'll have a hundred images that I, I consider you know usable and for the both the ball club and for Getty images. Other games, 200, 250. More than game action, I like to concentrate on stuff happening in the clubhouse. I like to take people behind the scenes. I like dugout action. Um, you know, I I want to hold the mirror up and basically try to capture the game and view it through the lens of the player. And I like to, I like to bring people into the clubhouse and into the dugout because they're never there and give them an idea of what it's like, the drama, the passion, the, the tension, the joy. It's really cool. And it's such a, it's a different side to, to what we do. You know, it, you're capturing a lot of times we don't even know what's going on. And all of a sudden you, one day you wake up, you see a picture. Oh, that was a cool picture, but, but it's definitely a different side. You notice how I use the term, Mike, uh, stills. Like I know what I'm talking about. I dropped the stills on you when, when normally I should have just said, how many pictures are you take and how many are you using? I use stills. I, I tried to, to be a, a professional. Well, no, and you know what? There's st- they are stills, but now we've moved into an age of social media, and everything. That's a, da- that's is, a dangerous place. You know it is, and and it's also now they want everything now. You know, back in the day, you shot a game, you it was film. You took the film in to your lab, whether it was color slides or black and whites. And the next day you got proof sheets and usually a day later there were images unless you work for a newspaper. Now, even if you're doing stills, they want you to upload something right away and everything is immediate. And, you know, sometimes there's what we like to call a cooling off period where you look at something and go, hey, this is a great image, but I can't use it here or I can't send it out now. And 
we're in a society where everything is about now and there aren't many filters. So it's, it's challenging to say the least. There, you know, the other thing is too, again, shooting baseball or football. When I do shoot things, I wait until the game's over and then I download everything. I edit it and I give a, a thumb drive to the club. But that being said, I have to look at the, the images I'm going to even let them see because you don't know who's going to see it. And there are some things that you, you know, that I shoot in the clubhouse where there could be some nudity or there could be some hijinks that amongst all of us, we're laughing. If the wrong person in the organization sees it and feels offended, threatened, it's a whole other movie that's blown up. And I know exactly what you're, you know what I'm talking about. Without, without a doubt. And, and, like you said, I mean, especially in today, 2022, everything is so hypersensitive. And, you know, a picture could be uh, given to the wrong person and it's completely out of context. It could be something that, you know, well, a picture is a picture. OK, but it could be out of context. All right. You don't you're not there to explain. Well, this is what led up to it. And it was all in good fun. Somebody could just see a picture on its face and go, oh, wait a minute. What are you doing there? You know. When, when, no, you don't understand. I asked him to do this or something. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's, you know, you can take it a step further to emails or texts. Words on a page could mean any number of things depending on how the person receiving the words takes them, how I meant it. That's why, you know, I like the spoken word because I can say something innocuous right i can say fuck you laughing and you you're laughing or i can say hey fuck you and now you're ready to fight that's the same thing when you email somebody or you text somebody and you don't know where their head's at or how they're going to interpret it i know people that have broken up over misinterpreted emails I mean, a part of me thinks that's hilarious. The other part, it's like sad. And it's kind of where we're at as a society now. Yeah. If you've got anything important or has to be has to be passed on in a very clear way, it's always best to do the old fashioned thing. Get on your rotary phone and have a phone call or better face to face. Then you'll be able to realize (laughs) body language, how I said it, what I meant. We're all on the same page. But you're right. So many things today, because we have a society that is so right now and we have so many different uh, gadgets that we have ways of communicating. It's like, oh, maybe did I say I'll even do it to to it doesn't matter who I'm sending it to. Did did it sound like I meant what I meant? You know, it's like, well, why don't you just pick up the phone and tell him and then he'll know. If I call Mike and I say, Hey Mike, you want to come on the podcast? If I write you a text, well, yeah, I think Booney's asking me this. It's better off just to call, just to clarify on the important things. Sure. Well, and you know the other thing, most of the most of the people that I I work with both with the Niners and the A's, they're people from mid-20s to early to late 30s. And getting them to pick up a phone. Oh, and my kids. Or, or walk into walk into the office to talk to them, and you can see it's like, oh, oh my God, 
Now what? <laughs> exactly. These kids today, These I'll get on my kids sometimes, you know, I'll ask them how his game went or ask my daughter how's, how the work's going. It's always text, text, text. And, and it's like, this is, I, I'm kind of getting into it now because I have young kids Sure. where I just text too. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I like to pick up the phone and call my dad. Still, he might send me a rare text. But if he's got something to say, it's, you know, he's going to call me five times maybe, but he's going to get his, his point across. And that's how we all grew up, sure. uh, where that's how we communicate. The kids today, they communicate in a different fashion. All right. Uh, man, interesting, Mike. You know, we've known each other for a long time. But when I really dug into your story and, and, and did my uh, did my due diligence, I found some really cool stuff. And, and it's basically I mean, you've you came into the into the game of football uh, early 70s and it, and it was Brody at the helm. In, in the night, you gone from Brody to Plunkett to, to Joe Montana to Steve Young on the A side in the early 80s. You came in, you were there at the beginning of uh, when Billy Martin was there. So you, you got it. You went from Billy Ball to, to Tony LaRusso, the Bash brothers, Ricky, I know was a, a favorite of yours to shoot uh, to the to, to Moneyball to the modern day. You've kind of seen that everything in between. Uh, not to mention, I'm learning about the career advice you got from Eric Clapton. You toured with the Rolling Stones. It, it's kind of like your your Forest Cup. You've been in some very unique positions throughout your life. Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's amazing. And I I tell people I I've been lucky to have been born when I was born, where I was born. And to experience all the stuff I've experienced. And there's no way I could have planned it out. And, you know, I've worked hard, but a lot of it has been being in the right place at the right time. And and doing things, I mean, the way I started out, I could never do that now. It's a it's a totally different environment. You know, I got on the Stones tour on a total hustle where I impersonated the, the, the Vogue magazine, the British Vogue magazine editor to Jagger's basically Lady Friday. And in those days, there were no texts. Um, there were no facts. You just called on the phone or you showed up. Today, I would have never got – when I started my, my sports career, I was in high school – and I started making my own credentials because I had found a credential on the field. Back in the day, we used to run on the field after the game to get chin, chin straps and autographs. I find this photo credential. And then I see that everybody that's shooting the games every week, they have these credentials. They change color, but it had the old prospector on it. So I I made my own credentials and I'd have the old prospector and I'd wait and see which color they used that day. And I pull that out of my box and tie a string on it and put it on my on my belt. The security in San Francisco in the, in the early 60s was SFPD every 10 yards. So I jump all over the rail. And the first time I did it, I had a top coat on. I had a camera. And one of the cops started walking right toward me. And so I walk toward him and I see on his below his badge, he's got his little nameplate and it says Pope. So I said, oh, Officer Pope, Michael Zagaris, I'm, I'm doing a book for the National Football League called Sunday Gladiators. And, you know, no book on the 
on the NFL would really be complete without the denizens of the field. I said, could you get a couple of your officers? I'd like to get you guys right in front of the bench, the press box behind you. I'd like to put you in my book. I shot that picture. They never fucked with me again. And, I, it, it's awesome. It is. All right. Continue. Continue. <laughs> and, and, that, and you know, that's how I started out. And I was, I, I was posing guys on the field before the game. You did that now. They'd not only throw you out of the stadium, they'd probably arrest you. But I had, you know, Paul Horning. I had guys down in linemen's. I remember Vince Lombardi had his camel coat and he was out on the, in the middle of the field in the 50 yard line. So I went out and did the same thing with him. I said, Coach Michael Zagaros, I'm doing this book for the NFL. And he's kind of looking at me like, What? I said, Do you mind if I get a shot? He goes, Go ahead, go ahead. So I, I take a quick picture and then I said, Coach, could you? He had a lineup. I said, could you like fold that lineup up and kind of point out to the, you know, the sky, like you're looking to the future? And he goes, what? He says, look, I'm trying to get ready for a football game. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) But I go back to the sideline where another friend of mine had, he was, he basically followed me down and he goes, God, you know, Lombardi. I said, oh yeah, we're, we go way back. It, it is so cool. And you're right. It is all about the hustle. And I have this this family friend and, and recently he had passed away, but his name was Dr. John and, and everybody in the Boone family. He somehow he's the guy that would show up Christmas Eve with gifts and hey, Dr. John, how you doing? And then he'd leave and, and we'd all look at each other. And this is back when grandpa was alive and dad and Aaron and Matthew and we're all there. And we kind of look at each other like, how the hell did he weave his way into our family? And he just did. It all started with I was getting a radio. I, I had my first car. And I was getting it checked out at mechanic or something. And I was talking to him about getting a new radio. You know, back then in the 80s, the cars didn't come with the cool. So you had to get the aftermarket if you wanted the big subwoofers. And I'm 16, 17 years old. I need that cool radio. And this this guy comes over to me. He goes, hey, kid. He goes, "Uh," goes, what you looking for? I said, I need a radio. Hey, I got the deal for you. (laughs) And that's where it all started. Next thing you know, he's a season ticket holder. Uh at Anaheim Stadium, who's a huge Angels fan. Dad had just gotten traded to the Angels. So now all of a sudden, he's my buddy at the baseball game. I'm in college years later, and he says, hey, you want to go to the uh, the music awards? They were at the Shrine. I was at USC. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how? He goes, I can make you a pass. Just like you said, getting the pass, making a replica. Next thing you know, me and my roommate are freshmen in college. We're walking down the red carpet at the music awards. Now we're backstage hanging out with Motley Crue, and we're these 18-year-old punks that everybody's kind of looking at us like, well, they've got their credentials, but what are you guys doing here? And he would do that all the time. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll finish my story with this. 2003, uh, I'm playing in the All-Star game in Chicago. Uh, White Sox were hosting that year. Right. And Dr. John had flown out. You know, he, I had gotten him tickets to the game. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there, and the game ends. And, you know, we're just kind of shaking hands. People are signing each other's hats. What you do at the end of an All-Star game before we get back, we're ready to get on a plane and go back to Seattle, start the second half. Well, I'm doing an interview or something, and I'm saying goodbye to all the teammates and, you know, getting ready for the second half. And I look down, there's Dr. John. He's sitting in my chair at the All-Star game. And I looked at him, and I said, 
how the hell did you get in here? He goes, come on, who do you think you're dealing with? You just got to act like you know what you're doing and you're supposed to be there. And you'd be amazed how, how many places I've been. And your story about jumping, getting on the sidelines and, and just like that, going up to that officer, you diffused him right away with the, hey, I'd love to get a picture. Oh, he went from, I'm going to question this guy to, wow, I'm important. He wants to take a picture of me and put me in his book. Now, all of a sudden, going forward, that officer sees Mike Zagaris taking – oh, no, no, he's good. He, he's with the Niners, and it, and it flips the whole script. It's, it's awesome is what it is. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's harder to do that now because there are so many layers of official people. You know, whether in the, you're in the music business, whether you're in baseball, football. I mean, now the World Series or, or the Super Bowl – it's all of the PR directors. Everybody's walking around with phones. They check in your credentials five or six times. I mean, it's insane. I, I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm, I'm the age I am. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be starting out right now. All right. You're born in Chicago, but you grew up in, in the Bay Area. Yep. Uh, tell me about your family as a kid. I know you're, you played baseball, football. Uh, take me through your your childhood. What was uh, you know, a young Michael grew up grew up in the valley. Grew up in places like Modesto, Hanford, Stockton. Oh, Redding. okay. Um, and in, you know, in the fifties, it was all baseball and football for us. And in those days, we were all on the street every day. And Stockton in those days were, and that was like the lion's share of you know my youth from maybe second grade going into early high school. It was a family town. Um, everybody played three or four sports. Um, nobody was inside. Stockton had a, it was class C ball in those days, California league, the Stockton ports, but we'd always go to port games, probably 30 games a year. We had also, my dad would take us to San Francisco and Oakland. We'd see the seals and the Oaks football. We'd see, We'd go to Stanford games. College of Pacific was right there. And in those days, COP, they they sent in 1956, 11 guys to the NFL. And so there, you know, there was a vibrant sports thing happening all the time. And like a lot of kids, I just assumed at some point I'd get a scholarship to play college football. I'd also play baseball in college. And then I'd end up playing either in the NFL or MLB, have a beautiful wife, a big car. You know how that, the dream that we all had. By the time I got into high school, I was playing two sports. Um, I had a chance to get a football scholarship. So I had visits to University of Washington, um, Oregon State. I saved my last visit for, for USC because I thought that's a school where I really want to go. And I thought I was hot shit because I was honorable mention all state. I go to SC that weekend. There are 12 of us. There were three guys in my position that were parade all Americans. One kid from a brother from Texas, who was a national sprint champ, another brother from Florida. And he was also a national sprint champ. And then a brother from Jersey. I think SC had a sophomore there was second team. It was Pac-10 in those days. And a junior, it was an All-American. I thought, you know what? 
I'll play here about 10 minutes. <laughs> and so I ended up going to school back east at George Washington University, where I could start early on, play both sports and work on the hill. So I was working on the hill for Pierre Salinger. Um, he ended up getting defeated by George Murphy. He goes to Paris. He comes back. He gets me a job on the hill with Bobby Kennedy. So I'm still playing two sports. I'm working for him. School's over. I come back out here and I start law school at Santa Clara. And I knew I, I could tell the first month in law school. And this is 1967. The whole counterculture thing was starting then. And I kept hearing it back east, oh, California is so loose. It's so crazy. It, all the women are beautiful. There's a great music scene. Every, you know, it's, and I, I could hardly wait to get home. Well, I started law school at Santa Clara. That was like going back to 1958 because I'd gone to Bellarmine, Jesuit prep school. Santa Clara was like a continuation of Bellarmine, except in 1967, I didn't want that continuation where 40 miles up the road, the Haight-Ashbury is just blowing up and Jimi Hendrix and the music scene. And halfway through that first year, Bobby decides to run for the presidency. So I stayed in law school, but went back to work for him. I was going up and down, basically Northern California in the Valley, took a trip to Oregon and ended up at, at the hotel June 6th, the night, you know, the night of the election at the ambassador. And um, I'm on the podium as he gives his speech. I'm thinking we're going to go back upstairs to the suites where there could be some victory parties. Somebody said, oh, there's going to be he's going to give another speech in another hotel. So I'm just following the crowd. And it was a low ceiling. It was hot as hell. And I remember coming off the stage. You could barely move. I'm taking little cat steps. And I'm almost at this doorway where we're going back into the kitchen. And I heard it sounded like somebody let out a string of firecrackers. And Bill Epridge, who's a friend of mine that was shooting for Life magazine and I think for time, he was behind me and knocked me into the door jam, running past me yelling nine millimeter. And I thought nine millimeter, that's like a fisheye lens. I didn't even equate it with a gun. And I took about another seven steps slipped and almost fell on what I thought was cooking oil and it was blood and it was pandemonium screaming. I remember seeing Rosie Greer had this guy and, you know, looking back on it now, it seems like a million years ago, but he had a guy and people were screaming, you know, break his hand, break his hand. At the time I had no idea what was going on. I just heard screaming and crying. I saw, I remember seeing Bobby's foot on the ground and then, the, you know, everything kind of came into focus. I had to end up flying back to San Francisco the next morning because I had a finals exam in law school in contracts. So I landed SFO. I'm just numb. Drive to Santa Clara, go into the class. They handed out the test. I, I remember I had seven or eight blue books and I sat there for a while. I was just kind of, you know, like, what the fuck? And then I started filling the blue books and I, I wrote like probably 3000 words on how America was fucked and murdered its leaders. Well, that was the end of law school. And my dad said, what the hell, what are you going to do now? And I said, um, you know, 
I don't know, but I'll know when I see it. And at that point, I dropped acid, not to escape, not to get fucked up, but I was searching for self. I was searching for truth. And I'd read Huxley's Doors of Perception. I knew the Beatles had dropped acid when I listened to Revolver. So I dropped acid and that just, it was like pulling back the curtain. It was I learned more that first trip than I learned in college, law school, working for the Kennedys. And I started hanging out at the Fillmore and the Avalon ballrooms because I'd always been into music. And that whole thing was exploding at the time. So I started working on a book on how the English musicians had come here and they were using our blues roots, much of what we had never heard and using their own style. And they were changing our culture and in turn being changed by it. So I, and in those days it was easy. All I had, I'd go to the Fillmore, I'd have a camera, I'd have a tape recorder, I'd have a couple joints in my pocket. I'd go backstage. I'd hang with the English musicians. We were all at that point in time, we were all the same age. And, you know, even the, I remember Cream was getting ready to break up. But, you know, Clapton was a star, but he was as, as much in wonderment of the scene as I was. And it was real easy. You know, we'd all get high, turn on the tape recorder. And so after a year, I had a ton of material. Clapton comes back and um, we hook up at the South Salido Inn. And I've got a transcript of the interview we had done. And I remember, because uh, I wanted him to go through it to okay everything. So he starts going through it. I remember we had some hash. We smoked some hash. And then started having the esoteric, com you know, conversations you have when you're really high. Like, oh, man, this this bedspread, it's, it's incredible, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, wow. And, he st and I was marking proof sheets while he was looking at the uh, transcript. And at one point he said, um, hey, man, what you got there? And I said, um just some proof sheets. She said, so do you mind if I have a look? And I said, yeah. So I handed him the proof sheets and I had a loop. And so he held a proof sheet in one hand, held the loop about three feet above it. And his eye a little bit above the loop and goes, Hey, oh, yes, these are quite good. And I says, Eric, if you actually put the loop on the proof sheet and your eye on the loop, you can actually see. So he starts looking at pictures and goes, fucking hell, these are great, man. And he says, um, can we use these? And I said, for what? He says, album covers, you know, um, song books. He says, look, man, we'll pay you. And I said, wow, cool. He says, you know, the writing's all right, but you should be like doing this for a gig. And that was it right there. I thought, wow. Um, about a month later, Peter Frampton is in town. He was a friend of mine that was playing with Humble Pie. So I tell him the conversation with Eric and he goes, well, look, you've got to come to, to London. And I said, you know, at that point in time, I was teaching in the hood, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I said, I don't have any money to come to London. He says, look, Mary and I have a place in St. John's Wood. He says, I'm on the road a lot. You can stay with us. So I go over to London with my then wife. Um, Peter's back in the United States. Mary, at the time, his wife, was a model um, and knew everybody in the scene. Twiggy was her best friend, um, George Harrison's wife, Patty. So I'd, I started going to events with her, um, shows. I met the faces. I met people I'd never meet ever in real life, even if I was English, if I didn't have that connection. 
And because of the fact I was from San Francisco, long hair, patched Levi's, I got gigs immediately. Ended up coming back here right into the music scene. After a couple of years, I really missed football. I missed baseball. And I missed, I mean, not only the games, I missed the camaraderie. So I started doing the same thing like I did to get onto the Stone Store. I called the 49ers and they said, no, you can't. We can't give you any credentials unless you've worked here. You know, it's like you're, you can't have a job because you have no experience. Well, I can't get any experience unless you give me a job. So I remember I ended up calling George McFadden, who was the PR director of the Niners at the time. I called George back, changed my voice, said I was Michael Herbert, editor of Football Digest. We had this great new photographer, Michael Zakaris, that we wanted to work for us. And he wanted to cover the Niners who were, at that point in time, their preseason camp was in Santa Barbara. So George ended up saying, look, have your guy go to United Airlines ticket thing. We'll have a, a round trip plane ticket. He can stay at the dorm for two days and shoot. I went down there. This was in 1970, the you know summer of 73. Uh, it's getting ready to be Brody's last year. So I shot that. They ended up giving me a season credential. I started giving pictures to um, Pro Magazine, Dave Boss, and that solidified the football thing. I started shooting for Topps baseball cards, and that's how I got into baseball. My friend Dennis was the team photographer for the Giants, so I was I I was helping him out, and then I'd go over and I was you know shooting the A's. The A's at the time they were in the midst of their dynasty and they were drawing crowds then with Finley as the owner, the kind of crowds that were the A's are drawing now, which is almost nobody there. I'll never forget going to the, the first game of the series in 1973 A's are playing the Mets. It opens up in Oakland. My dad and I show up, you know, hoping to get some scalp tickets. No need because you could get, there were tickets for sale. The upper deck, the three sections of the upper deck on both right and left field side, empty. Um, no bunting because Finley was too cheap to, to pay for anything. And um, the A's didn't have a, a team photographer at the time either. So I, you know, basically over time just ingrated myself. I remember um, Jim Banks was the PR guy. They had a front office staff of about, 10 people. And so again, I was in the right place at the right time. And it was, it was great getting back into sports because the thing that you miss the most, I think when you stop playing more than the games, you miss hanging out with the guys. I mean, you're, you're, you're there from early to mid morning for day games. Um, Night games, you show up at two or three and you're there till, you know, the game's over. Where else can you go and be with your guys and talk sports and women? Nowhere else. And it's it's kind of like never having to leave high school. And my whole approach in shooting sports at that time was the same approach I used when I shot music. I didn't want to shoot just somebody playing their instrument or singing in front of the microphone. That's what you 
I, anybody that goes to a club or a concert, see. I wanted to be behind the scenes. I wanted to take people into the inner sanctum and show them what it was really like to be a, to ex- have the experience of being a player or have the experience of being a musician. You know, the whole thing with music, I couldn't really play an instrument well enough to be in a band, but with a camera, that was, you were almost like the fifth Beatle. Before the show, you were backstage and it was you, the band, their road manager, maybe a girlfriend or two, and their dope dealer. That was it. And it was like you were in the band. And and it, listen, in those days, you were in the band because whatever they did, you did. I remember, you know, guys would be tuning up. We'd be passing joints back and forth. You know, somebody would lay out a couple lines. You'd hit the lines. Now you're following the road manager or the guy that, you know, the stage manager for where, wherever venue you're at. And you're following his flashlight. You come up on the stage. It's dark. You see all these like cigarettes and lights. And then the lights hit the, the first sound of the amp. I mean, it was like, wow, this is better than any money you could get. Like you are in the band and you're experiencing it. It's the, it's the same in baseball or football. It's you, you get it. And I've always approached it with a very Stanislavski type. You become what you shoot. You are what you shoot. And with sports, you're there every day. Players forget that you're taking pictures. You're just part of the thing. So nobody's going to mug for photos. They're just going to be themselves. And that way you can capture the stuff that I think is the really most important stuff. I mean, if, if I gave you a, a book of your career and half of it was behind the scenes, the locker room, the dugout, in the training room, I mean, those are the things you really want to remember as much as the swing, the great slide, you know, the diving catch, because it's all part and parcel of your experience. You're right. And that's, man, you, th- you think, okay, I, I, I want to, uh, there's so many questions I have for you, but do you feel like there was a technique, like you said, behind the scenes, catching guys, and, and after a while, they don't even know you're there. Do you think there's a there's a knack to that? Because for the most part, especially when something's new, uh, you're very aware. I walk onto the field, there's a new guy. I don't recognize him. He's taking a lot of pictures of me. What's going on? You know, I'm probably going to give him a little how I'd be. Hey, sure. buddy, what the what the hell are you doing? How many pictures do you need? Especially yeah. if I don't know you. Exactly. Now, after a while, okay, do you feel like you had a special way of endearing yourself and getting that real shot? Because you're right. After a while, I, I knew when I came to Oakland, I was going to run into Mike. But there, you were very unique in that world. Because I every other place I went, I go to New York, I go to Chicago, wherever, wherever my team's playing on the road, I never remembered other cameramen. You know, I might remember a face, but it's not like, well, I'm going to New York and Joey's going to be there to shoot pictures of me. No, there was nothing. But I knew in Oakland I was going to see you coming out of the dugout at some point. I knew that every time. That was just that was kind of a part of Oakland. And you're right. Those behind the scenes in the training room. 
in the gym, in the whirlpool, uh, in the snack room, capturing those pictures would be now looking back, you know, being 52 years old, looking back, those would be cool to have some real shots. Cause any, you know, I was playing, I was far enough along where if I needed a bat or a game uh, with the technology we have today, I could, I could find that clip of me hitting that home run or me getting that base hit or, or making that play. If I searched it hard enough, I could find anything I needed as far as on the field stuff, but that behind the scenes stuff, that clubhouse, you know, just a, a moment in a clubhouse. It, it's tough to find those unless once in a while something crops up like, oh, I remember that day. That was really cool. But you're right. that Those are the real thing. Do you think in shooting sports, do you think your experience, and I never knew that you played college football, but do you think that experience on the field as a baseball player as a, and as a football player in the world of photography, do you think that helped you is all right, because I played it because I know how the action where this guy goes on this particular point, I'm going to be more ready than a guy maybe that never played football or never played baseball. Did you feel like you had, that gave you an advantage or the experience of playing helped you? I think the experience of playing helped me more in relating because almost every photographer that I had, that I worked with, they didn't play past high school and many of them never played at all. And a lot of them were really in awe of the players. Oh, so you're talking the social aspect. It was like, yeah, right, I, they don't, they, they don't, they don't, they don't know how to, right. They don't know how to interact with us. No, they, they right. I got know, it. I got it. And that's a lot of it. And, and you know, honestly, I, I'm, I'm talking about this right now. I never thought about it. That was just always who I was. And that was part of my thing. It's like, I think it's like if somebody talks to you about hitting and me, how, well, how can you do this? I think the most important things about hitting or about playing or about dancing, you can't even articulate it. It's just part of who you are. And if, if you don't have that, I don't know if skill is the right word, but if you don't have, if that's not part of who you are, you can read books on how to and you can watch YouTube videos and and you can get better, but you're still not going to be the same. If you know what I mean? Yeah. If you can't dance, you're never you may learn how to functionally dance, but you'll never be a dancer if you can't hit. And, and I think the way I was I've been able to interact, that's just part of my personality. And that helped me with access and it helped people be more comfortable. And it helped me be comfortable, for instance, when people, and there are people that are going to give you shit. Remember how Junior was? Junior used to fucking grind on some of the photographers and I'd laugh because they'd be, some of the guys would be freaked and then he'd laugh. And it's right. like, and I said, how come, how come he doesn't scare you? And I said, he's, he's just Junior. I said, you know, don't give your lunch money up to the schoolyard bully. Or you'll be giving it up every day. It's joking. It's real life. I found, I found in all my interactings, you know, during my career, it's almost like I found myself testing whatever group of people, you know, from photographers to, to, uh, to the media. And I would test them to see how they'd answer certain questions. Not, not how they answered but the tone they answered, yeah. 
I wasn't necessarily looking for any particular answer. It's how you answered the question. So the media would gather around and maybe there was a couple new guys in there. Well, I'd point them out and I'd say something, maybe, maybe, you know, equip at them real quick. Sure. Just to get their response. If they responded in a way I thought was cool, that guy's in right now. He's in. Now you're kind of in that inner family. The guys that didn't know how to respond, maybe I'll test them again at a different date. But it is amazing. And and I, I never thought about that until you brought it up because I was thinking, oh, no, I know how to get the great angle of that wide receiver going up for a pass. No, it was more of I know how to talk to that wide receiver after the game. So yeah. I'm not a pain in his ass taking a picture, though. Oh, there's Mike. Yeah. Take whatever you want, Mike. And there's a way to get that. And it's right. It's the behavior pattern. It's being putting yourself in that position like, yeah, he's one of the guys. He's like us. He gets it. Yeah. And that and that is so important, especially in a baseball season, because, man, it's every day and it doesn't go away. And it's 162 days. You get a guy that grinds on you for 162 games. Well, that guy's probably not going to get the shots he wants or, or that guy's not going to get the interview he wants if he grinds on your nerves because it's everyday thing. It's how you go about it. It's come, doing it at the right time, not doing it at the wrong time. You know, asking yeah. for the Yeah. You know, and it's really it's really interesting. And it is something if, if you're if you're good at it and you know how to do it, it can it can get you a lot of perks that maybe a counterpart or a colleague of yours can't get. Yeah. Well, I mean, and listen, you, you went through it every day. You go to the ballpark every day. You're with 26 guys. You're not tight with all of them. Yeah. There are probably two or three guys you're really tight with three or four or five more that you're good friends with other guys that whatever. And then there are probably two or three guys. It's like, keep this motherfucker away from me. Right. I had, I'll tell you this. And, <laughs> and people ask all the time, would you, when that game starts, when the bell rings, when that national anthem's over, I got 24 guys back for probably about three hours. Yep. We're in the trenches together. I'll do anything for you. After that, we pick our own friends. <laughs> and I had a lot of teammates that were good friends of mine. Like you said, I had a lot of teammates that we were acquaintances. And then a few here and there that, you know what, I'd rather not have dinner with you. Once the game starts, I got your back. But once it's over and, and we go into our private lives, the, of course, there's certain guys that now nah, I'd rather not share a ride with you. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather not have dinner with you and have to sit there for another two hours. I have to work with you three hours a night. And and to 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 the to the teammates I've had and the players I've played with through the years, to their credit, uh, very rare that I had that relationship. I, I mean, I can count probably on one hand all the years I played and all the teammates I had that eh, I'd rather not share a dinner with you. The rest is kind of like, you know, most guys are good guys. They really are. Yeah. You know, sometimes you get a bad rap in the world of sports and, and baseball. You catch a guy at a wrong moment. Uh, you know, a fan, especially sometimes not going to have that great first experience. Uh, somebody might assign 30 autographs and he's got to go hit in the cage. And that 31st, he's got to tell him, no, well, that 31st might have just shown up and go, oh, what a jerk. He didn't sign my. No, you know, once again, context, you've yeah. got to know. So so you're never going to be able to escape that. But but I found that most guys and, and you know, as a young player, I'd look across the diamond and I think this is just natural human behavior. And, and for you as a photographer, the young player comes up, he's on the visiting team. You're in Oakland. You're probably, you're probably thinking, Hmm, I, 
I don't really like this guy. Let me let me figure it out. But I got to take pictures of him. Now, over the years, he thought, you know, my first impression was wrong. I found like I was wrong a lot in first impressions on on guys I played against, especially when I was young. I, sure. I couldn't stand certain people. Then all of a sudden in, a, in an offseason event or or, uh, you know, at a restaurant or a bar after a game, I'd meet him and, and I'd kind of come away from it going, man, I wish I wouldn't have met him because I couldn't stand him before. And he's actually a good guy. I felt like I. I needed that edge when I played against a team. Like, I want to hate you. I, I want to not like you. And, and the farther I played into my career, you get to know guys, you know, because you're playing against these guys every year. And sure. more times than not, my instinct across the field looking at them uh, was wrong. It, it was like, nope, good guy again. I'm sick of meeting. I, I started trying not to meet the guys because I'm thinking, no, I can't stand them. If I get to know them, I probably like them. So I'm not going to go meet them. Well, you know what your dad and when your grandfather played, it was like that. There were at, Fr- Frank Robinson, he was he was a badass. He he wouldn't talk to players on other teams until late in his career. It was like fuck you. Um and there's a lot more fraternization now. The A's of the late 80s, early 90s, I knew a lot of the players, they hated our guys. Because they pimped and hot dogged, but if if that guy's on your team, you love him. You know when when uh, the 49ers, there was talk about them getting Deion Sanders. We had five players, leaders that went up to the front office and said, "Hey, we don't leave, we don't need that guy here. He's his makeup. He's not a 49er. I'm not a player, but I thought that too. I thought, fuck this guy. We don't want him here. Once Deion came. He was one of the hardest workers. He made everybody better. He helped everybody. He was a great teammate. He was, he was one of those guys where, boy, if everybody was like this, we'd never lose. And that's sometimes somebody that looks like a dick on another team. When he's your guy, he's the best. Is it? Don't you think it's such an exception in sports? Because pretty much in, as we navigate through this life, you know, we're all, we all have an internal clock. We got gut feelings. Usually when you're out in, in just life at the grocery store, wherever you are, you have feelings. Ah, I got a bad feeling about this or that. You're usually instinctively right. Yeah. But, but in, the, in the sports arena, players in the other team, you're usually wrong. Isn't that, isn't that bizarre? Because it's the only thing I think where I really don't trust my gut is yeah. play, playing against an opponent because – I don't know. It's just something in him that maybe he wants, maybe he can't stand me. And, and because of that, I can't stand him, but that's, that's on the, that's the competition where, where throw your gut away. Cause it, it's not, it's not very accurate. No. Well, and the other thing is too, what other job, especially baseball, are you judged every single day in the paper and on the radio and I don't care. I mean, most people's makeup. I mean, let's say we're on the same team. We're on a winning streak. We just won the game. I went 0 for 5, hit into a double play, took two call third strikes, and I haven't hit in a week. Everybody, it, the rest of the clubhouse is pretty loose. I'm thinking, fuck, am I going to lose my gig? What's wrong with me? And then, you know, the press comes up to you, hey, Brent, what's wrong with your swing? Do, do you realize, you know, why Why do you think you're not hitting this pitch? And, and dealing with stuff like that every day, that's – and then having to interact with your teammates, and then there's your family. 
it's one of the toughest things of all. And, or, and if you play in a town like Philly, where if you're not doing well, they're, they're all over your shit. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, I remember, you know, and I played, my best years are in Seattle and, and what a, you know, you couldn't have nicer, a nicer fan base. And at the time we had great teams and, and uh, they were unbelievable to me, uh, my, my years in Seattle, but I'll tell you on those lean weeks or those lean months where, where I wasn't having a good week, a good month, uh, the team wasn't doing well. I remember, you know, my wife would say, well, you want to go to lunch today? And I said, you know, I really don't. And it wasn't that people were going to be mean to me. It was that that little grandma, I was going to be eating lunch. And that grandma was going to come up to me with that look in her eye and say, Booney, are you okay? <laughs> you know, it's like the last thing I need is your sympathy. I, you know, that's just not in my DNA. Of course I'm all right. Why would you think I'm not all right? And that was the real, I don't know if it was a fear, but it was something I didn't want to face. I didn't want pity. Times were tough. I've had tough times a, a lot of times in my career and these, this too shall pass and I will get over it. But just going to that and just having, like you said, it's that day to day. It never goes away. You know, when things are rolling and everybody, you know, you walk down the street, everybody wants a piece of you. Well, that's a nice way because it's from an adulation. But at the same time, it can be overwhelming as well. But the, the toughest times for me were things were going bad and people were neg never negative to me in Seattle. They were always supportive of all my years there. But it was that grandma or that or that mom with her kids, you know, and, and it wasn't even words sometimes. It was a look because they knew the team was losing. They know I'm two for my last 20. And it's just that kind of puppy dog guys like, are, are you going to be OK, Brett? Yes, I'm going to be okay. Why are you asking? Yeah. And, I, and I remember those moments more than more than the the real good times when I was on fire and I was ten for my last twenty. Sure. Well, you know, and you were really lucky too playing where you played because playing in. I mean, I'm sure your dad had stories about when he was with the Phillies and they right. were doing well. Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Yeah. You don't do well there. They're all over your shit. Yep. It's a daily thing. Well, I, I mean, at this point of your life, I mean, what, what haven't you experienced and, and not to make it, and it, it's not a light moment at all, but pretty unique thing that you, you're, you witnessed Bobby Kennedy's assassination. And the last thing you remember is you're slipping on some blood. And next thing you know, you know, you're backstage, you're, you're talking to Clapton and you decide, I want to go back to sports. So in 73, you, you, you go back to the Niners. Like you mentioned, uh, it was the end of Brody's run. End I, of Brody's I, run. I don't know yeah. if it, it was it going into Plunkett yet or, you know, I know Montana came in 79. Yeah, he came in 79. Plunkett came in 76, 77. And, you know, Monty, they had, Monty Clark had coached one year. Joe Thomas came in. They brought in Plunkett. They, they had like four coaches in two years. It was the, the wrong place at the wrong time for Jim. They ended up releasing him, and the Raiders picked him up. Um, the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. And it was, you know, even in those times, with all the different changes and the GMs, it was – it was still, it was exciting. Although, you know what? You look back, Brett, so much of what you were doing at the time, you're there every day. 
it, it's almost a blur. And when you're young, time, time kind of, you, you don't have the same relationship with time that you do when you're older. And it was, uh, it was mainly fun and games for me then. And it was watching the movie and the circus. But, I, you know, when I was doing football and baseball then, I was still doing rock and roll as well. I, I was doing all three. And the irony was a lot of the musicians, as great as they were, they wished they were sports stars. You know, Rod Stewart always wanted to be huge and a, a Premier League guy from Scotland. And he used to bring a soccer ball with him everywhere. Um, a lot of the ball players, both football and baseball, they wanted to be rock stars. They thought, God, you're doing that. I'd give anything to be a rock star. And it's almost like whatever you are, you think that what your buddy's doing might be even better. I used right. to see it, you know, the players at the, at the Super Bowl every year, they used to have a players party on Thursday night. And it evolved into, it was almost like a circus. And players from all over the league would fly in. And it was, it was hilarious because a lot of the brothers would come in and then they'd rent either SUVs, they'd rent, um, God, I'm trying to think of the car and I can't now. And they would bring, not their wife, Maybe not even their girlfriend, but they'd have somebody else. And everybody was doing this. And it was, listen, it was like an MTV party. And guys would be coming up the stairs. And I remember one guy, and I won't mention his name, he, he rented a pit bull. And he had two girls with him. And there was another guy at the top of the stairs going, man, man, those bitches are fine. And, they were, <laughs> and, and, it's like, and I'm looking at him, and I thought, wow, the, the women he was with, I thought were even finer. But it was like... Whatever you have, the other guy has something better. And I thought, this is this is better than the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is like a, a movie, a circus. <laughs> you're, you're right, though. I mean, it, it, and maybe it's an escape for us, you know, as athletes. It's thinking, wow, playing baseball, it's kind of boring. I do it every day. and But to somebody else, no. It's, it's a, I mean, it's like for me now. I look at, the, you know, my hobbies, golf. I, I'm not ultra serious about it, but I love it. Sure. So I, I put myself into that scenario on a Sunday, you know, coming down the 18th fairway with the lead. I mean, how cool would it be to stand over that shot? And and would I be nervous? Would I not? You know, baseball, because it's what you do for a living. I never was nervous. I mean, I had uh, points where, you know, maybe I'd have some butterflies, maybe opening day, maybe uh, the first game in a postseason. But but if the bases are loaded in the in the eighth inning in a tie game, uh, my job was to to breathe and, and not be nervous to put the put the onus on the pitcher, not myself. Sure. You learn that with time, so it's really not that big of a deal. People ask all the time, "Well, it must be tough with sixty thousand people yelling at you." And I said, "No, you don't understand. After a while, that's what you do. I don't hear those sixty thousand people. That's that's irrelevant. If I yeah. have a good swing and, and I'm feeling good at the time." I've got one thing in mind and, and putting my the, the at bat and, and the, my plan uh, to put it to use right now in, in, in this batter's box. And sometimes it's going to be a great result and sometimes it's not. But this crowd isn't going to affect me. Well, you put you put yourself in another arena 
it's the perfect example is is teeing off in a in a golf tournament and maybe you've got a a 10 or 20 or 30 person deep gallery and and they oh it's easy for you you play in front of 60,000 i said yes and i'm a professional at that i'm a hack at golf so i get a little bit nervous when i have a little bit of a crowd to hit that first tee ball it's kind of like wow this is not what i do <laughs> you know i'm not yeah. programmed for this i'm used to playing with my buddies at at a you know, at a golf course, just us foursome, not guys waiting around expecting me to hit a ball like Tiger Woods, because more times than not, I'm not going to do it. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, no, exactly. Exactly. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, 1981, you get the job with the A's as the photographer. Billy Martin is at the very beginning. This is after his Yankees uh, run. Um Billy Martin. It's Billy. Yeah, I mean, Mike, yeah. Mike, in, in, when I was a kid, right. probably 16 years old, 17 years old, uh, dad's playing for the angels. You know, I'm in high school and to make a little money, I, I, I got offered the job in the visiting clubhouse. So I was a clubby, you know, I'd shine the shoes. I'd, I'd get the, the dirty clothes at the end of the night and put it in the laundry and I'd help out around the clubhouse. Uh, I was the ball boy down the right field line. So I'd warm up Reggie every night in right field and throw one over his head. He'd yell at me and I'd say, ah, whatever, Reggie, (laughs) and and try to meet, you know, meet and talk to the girls in the stands. That's what I did. So Billy came up to me one night. uh, You know, this had to be, I forget what it was, but he's like, hey, kid. And he has no idea that Bob Boone is my my dad. He just thinks I'm the clubhouse kid. And he goes, and I'm 15 or 16. He says, hey, you need to run up to the second to the second floor, go to here. And, and they got some stuff for me. I want you to bring it down. So, you know, okay. Mr. Martin wants me to go up and do an errand for him. I go up there and it was the liquor and they'd give me two bottles of vodka to bring it to Mr. Martin down and put it in his managing office. And I put it down. So I tell my dad about this. I said, yeah, Billy Martin's got me running around getting him vodka. Next day, (laughs) my dad comes to the park and airs out Billy Martin. You never tell my 15 year old kid to go get your vodka for you. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, dad, you're going to kill my tips. I didn't tell on, I didn't tell on him for you to go yell at him. I was just telling you an interesting story, but that's, you know, that's how dads are with their kids. But, but interesting, but you get to the A's uh, during the Billy Martin years. Then you live through La Russa and those awesome teams of the late eighties. You won the world series in 89 and with, you know, with the bash brothers. And I know uh, doing my prep, I, I know you were, you were a fan of Ricky. I'm a huge fan of Ricky, but also a guy that I got to know when I worked with the A's in, in 2014 and he passed away recently was Bob Welsh. And oh, uh, I, well, I, I know you were, you were oh, fond of him. You got one of my favorite guys, Jason Giambi. You loved him and Timmy yeah. Hudson. I had a lot of, I had a lot of battles with Timmy in the early two thousands and, and a uh, high level of respect here uh, for Tim Hudson. But just take me through those years of, well, I mean, with the Niners what? and the A's with, with, with Billy starting with him. I mean, when I was a kid, can 11 years old, he was one of my idols. And he and Mantle ran together and he was crazy, but I, you know, I'd never met him. So it's, it's all baseball. By the time he came to us, he, he'd had those tumultuous years in New York. So he's managing. I'm at the cage one night. It's, I think it's early May night game. And one of the security guys comes over and he said, Hey, uh, there's a woman that wants to talk to you. And I said, Hey, I'm, I can't not, not now I'm busy. 
said, oh, she's really insistent. And I said, well, what does she look like? He said, she's older. She's over there. So I, I get close to the dugout and I'm looking around and I see this really old lady. And I'd say old, like late seventies, early eighties, satin A's jacket. And she goes, Hey, you photographer. I said, me? She's yeah. You photographer. Come here. <laughs> I said, can I help you, ma'am? She goes, yeah. Where's Billy? I said, uh, I looked back at the cage. You know, I said he was at the cage a few minutes ago. He's, I, he's probably in his office. She says, well, tell that little cocksucker to get out here right now. His mom wants to see him. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. Now now it all makes sense. And so I remember going to the door, and the door is shut. So I knock on the door, nothing, knock on it again. Opens a little bit, and it's Art Fowler. And Art was our pitching coach, but he was Billy's drinking buddy and his best friend. His nose and his cheeks are really red. And I said, hey, uh, Billy's mom's out there. And he goes, Billy's not feeling too well right now. Why don't you come back? <laughs> and, and those guys in those days, remember when you'd come and we, we were at Phoenix Muni in spring training? Yep. And how they had that trailer above the berm on, on the left field above the fence. Mm-hmm. We used to come out and Mac Jones would stretch everybody. When we'd stretch Billy would take the coaches and they'd go up into the trailer. His his whole coaching staff, I want to say they were professional drinkers slash alcoholics. They always had vodka up there. And it was him, Lee Walls, Art Fowler, Eddie Matthews. They'd come back down. And I remember at the cage, they'd be yelling and it didn't smell like somebody had been drinking vodka. It smelled like somebody had just smashed a, a quart of vodka at your feet. And depending on his mood, there were games where he, he had a, a rule. We had like two or three doubleheaders, I remember, in 81. And he had a rule where you couldn't eat between games of a doubleheader. So we're playing the Mariners. The second game went on and on. It started to rain. And finally, about seventh inning, I thought, hey, you know what? I've got enough. I'm getting out of here. So I'm packing my stuff up in the clubhouse. Shooty Babbitt comes up the tunnel, goes right to the spread, and he's making himself a a sandwich because he can't wait. All of a sudden, I hear Cleet Boyer yelling. Boyer comes up the tunnel. He goes, Shooty! Shooty, Billy wants you to pinch hit. Get your ass down there. So Shooty grabs the sandwich and stuffs it in his back pocket, takes an at bat, 2-2 pitch, lines a ball into the corner in right field. He's rounding second, play at third. He slides in. He's safe, gets up. He's dusting himself off. The back of his, you know, his pants, it's like ketchup, mustard, <laughs> Billy comes to the top steps and is yelling, Babbitt, Babbitt, what's for fucking dessert? And it was like every week there was something like that. So with Billy, it was constantly, it was an ongoing movie. Um, remember, remember Doc Ellis? I do. So I think it's 73 or 74. They're playing the Giants and I'm at, I'm at the cage talking with Richie Hebner and I see this guy with a big like parka on. We keep talking and I hear, Hey, 
hey, hippie. Hey, hippie. Hippie motherfucker. And I look around, and now I turn around thinking, God, there must be a hippie behind me, forgetting that I'm the one with the long hair and patched pants. And I look again, and I said, hey, are you talking to me? He said, you're the only hippie I see. I said, hey, man, I'm hip, but I'm not a hippie. He goes, whatever. He said, you know where I can get any weed? And I said, oh, so now I'm a dope dealer? <laughs> he said, I sure hope so. And I said, hey, look, man, I smoke, but I, I'm not a dealer. He said, you know where I can get any weed? And I said, yeah, I could probably make some calls. And he said, make one right now. And this is like, again, 1973, 74. So I had to go up. We're a candlestick. I had to go up the whole first deck. And then there's a pay phone as, as you get close to the second deck. So I made a couple calls, came back. BP's almost over. He said, what do you got for me? I said, I have a friend that can probably, he can probably get you a lid. It's $12. And he said, done, go get it. And I said, hey, I'm shooting a game. I said, I can probably come tomorrow. And he said, uh, bring me the lid. I said, it's $12 cash. I don't have any money. I said, have the money for me. And I said, and I want a pirate hat. So I go in the next day. Slip in his lid. He gives me $12, gives me a pirate hat. And in those days, everybody, it was, you played each team home and away twice. There was no interleague or anything. Pirates come back in, I think, the end of end of August. And I just went in to say hello. And in those days, the pirate clubhouse was wild. Everybody had their own boom box and music's going on. And I'm looking for I'm looking for Doc, and I remember I ran into Madlock and I said, "Hey, I said is Doc around here." He said, "He's in the training room." All of a sudden, Doc comes out of the training room, and he's got his hair in these little pink curlers, like girls used to wear in the second and third grade. And he sees me, and he goes, "Hey, man, you got any more of that good weed?" And I'm like, "What the fuck?" I said, "Hey," and then I notice he's got two joints wheat straw joints one over each ear and he takes one off his ear and flicks it at me going try my brand just as bill verdon is coming out of the bathroom and so here's this wheat straw joint skidding on the floor i turned around i didn't run out of the clubhouse but i did a heel and toe and a candlestick when you came out of the visiting clubhouse the giant clubhouse was literally right across the way and then you had to walk down this long ramp and you came out where the giant bullpen was in right field. So I go down there, I go all the way up. The giants are just finishing up batting practice. My heart's beating out of its chest. And I'm thinking, Christ, about five minutes later, here, here comes doc with his parka on. He goes, Oh man, you went running out of there like a scared little bitch. And I said, are you out of your mind? talking about weed and throwing a joint at me in front of your manager. <laughs> he said, Hey, fuck, fuck Verdon. I do what I want to do. Can you imagine something like that happening today? Oh, never, never <laughs> in a million years. I mean, it's, <laughs> this is, this is great because it's, I mean, it, you know, and that's because that's a little, you know, that's a little before my time. Right. I hear I hear the story. I was around, you know, for that 
generation of players. Obviously, my dad was playing and I was a little kid in the clubhouse, but I was a little kid in the clubhouse. It's like all I care about is being on the field and shagging during batting practice. So I'm not looking at the behind the scenes stuff. You know, I hear I hear the stories from my grandpa that, you know, would go on and on and and uh, really interesting. You know, that's one thing I'd love to do. I'd love for a day just to be able to go back in his time in that Mickey Mantle era and just kind of, you know, when, when people used to come to the ballpark with the men would have their suits on and, and, the, yep. and the, and their hats and the women were all dressed up like it was the Kentucky Derby. I I'd love to go back to that time frame and just see what it was like for a day. Oh, but yeah. those, but those seventies years, those were crazy years, you know, in, in major league baseball. Well, and you know, you know, it was really crazy. A lot of the stuff that I'd see in music and, you know, especially the English bands, I mean, it was it was insane. It wasn't quite that insane in the NFL or the or MLB, but almost. And somebody said later on, they said, wow, they got high. And I said, you know what you don't realize? Everybody at that point in time, they were the same age. And that's what was going on in society. And not just in sports and entertainment. I said, you know where I'd see that too? I'd see that at parties and it would be lawyers, doctors. It would be professional people. And so all of those people merely reflected what was going on in society at the time. And in the 70s, it was, you know, because of the Vietnam War um, and because of the whole counterculture thing with Nixon, you know, there was one side, like I was born in 45. Most of the people in my class, they fell on the other, on the conservative side of all that. They, they drank a lot of binge drinking, you know, from when I was in high school and college, 1946. And I, I'm using an arbitrary number, but it was kind of like that. From there on people, instead of being drinking a lot, they'd smoke. Um, then they tried psychedelics because that's what was happening in the greater society. And, you know, it it made for interesting times all the way around. But it made for some incredibly funny, crazy stories. Remember Jerry Grody? Yep. Okay, so I'm shooting for tops. He came in with the Mets, and I was down I, – I, batting practice I was shooting so that I went down the line at Candlestick where the visiting bullpen was in left field. And I was shooting somebody with the Mets and I'm starting to walk back and I'm talking, I think I'm talking to one of their pitchers and all of a sudden I get a ball, one hopper right off the shins and it fucking, st- and it hurt. And I, and I look up and Jerry Grody's standing between home plate and third base and he yells, get off the field, you fucking hippie. <laughs> and I could tell by his voice, he wasn't jo- it wasn't a joke. And I thought, what the fuck? So I picked up the ball and did a little bicycle step and fired it back off of his shins. And I gave him the finger. And, I, and he had that, like, birthmark on his face. And I said something like, hey, fuck you, you pitto-faced motherfucker. And he came after me like a mad bull. And I thought, you know, a candlestick, I, I thought, I'm not going to mess with this. 
So I jumped. I had to climb up into the stands because it wasn't a low thing. Thinking that was the end of it. Here came Grody. He climbs up into the stands. I went up to the top of the first deck at Candlestick. He's right after me. Now I go up to the and the, to get to the second deck. They have this long concrete runway. And I'm halfway up the runway, and he's still chasing me, and then slips because he's got his cleats on, and it spikes, and he falls. And so I get to the top, and I grab my crotch and said, you know, hey, fuck you. And then I keep going. I went up to the top of the second deck, the last row, down the right field line, and I'm like, holy God, this guy's out of his mind. And then I remember I had a, like half a joint, so I had a couple puffs of that. Ended up going back down. Now the game's almost ready to start, so the Mets are coming back out onto the field. And again, at Candlestick, you had to come out the right field line and then down the line to the visiting dugout, which was on the third base side. So Felix Mion is walking by, and I'm sitting in the photo booth, and he goes, he goes, hey, man. And I said, hey, Felix, I don't want any trouble. He goes, no, no. He say. Watch out for Jerry Grody. He said, no one like him. No one on the mess. Nobody in baseball. He said, he's a bad man. Watch out. I said, no shit. I know. Thank you. <laughs> Unbelievable. 89, World Series. Where are you when the, when the earthquake hits? I'm in the clubhouse. We're getting ready to go out. I'm talking to players. I remember Stan Javier grabbed my camera, took a picture of me uh, against the wall in front of a clock, and then I go out with Hosey. And again, we're at Candlestick. It's right before game three. Walked down that long runway. Took some pictures of Hosey. I'm from behind as he's walking up the stairs out into the light. And now we're starting down the right field line, and fans are giving him shit. You know, oh, you hot dog, you this, you that. I remember he stopped and put his hands out because he was a performer and the earthquake hit. And, you know, when it hit, I didn't even, first of all, I heard this, this loud. It sounded like three or four jets coming literally right over the top of the stadium where you couldn't, it was like, (laughs) what I found out later was, that was the Teutonic plates about six miles below the earth shifting. And that was the sound. And I, you lose all, all track of time, place, space. I remember seeing the, the light towers going back and forth and I could actually see the upper deck was kind of going up and down and thinking, God, my son and my wife are, are on the third base side there under that. And the scoreboard was just going crazy. And I I don't know whether it was 10 seconds, half a minute, whatever it was. And then it stopped. And Hosey had kind of like fallen back against me. And he he said, he said, hey, what was that, man? And I said, that was just an earthquake. And as soon as the earthquake stopped, there's a big roar that went up from the crowd. And he said, I've got a migraine. I don't like this. And I said, I said, well, It'll, you know, the earthquake's done. And so we we kept going down the right field line. At the first base coaching box, we run into it was Joe Morgan, Willie Mays, and two writers from New York. And Willie was just babbling. He's going, man, I told you something wrong, man. I, I, I want to get out of here. And Willie walked away. 
And I said to Joe Morgan, I said, can you fucking believe this? And he said, hey, for the last half hour, Willie said something's wrong. Something doesn't feel right. I don't like this. And, you know, that day it was mid-October, but it was about 85, 86 degrees, which is even for that time of year, Indian summer, that's really warm. And, and it was still there wasn't a, a bit of a breeze. So Willie had some kind of a instinctual kind of premonition, which what which blew my mind. And then, you know, we ended up getting up to the to the dugout and I thought, OK, we had an earthquake. We're going to have the game now. And then you started seeing people had little small TVs because of the networks. And somebody said the Golden Gate Bridge is down or the, um, the Bay Bridge is down and there are fires in the marina. And it was like, wow. And then our wives who had come from Oakland on a bus and just missed, you know, because when the earthquake hit, if you were coming from Oakland, you were on that elevated concrete freeway that all collapsed. They got there. And I, I remember um, Storm Davis's wife was in hysterics. Um, Steiny's wife was crying. It, it was crazy. Um, and after about an hour, they banged the game. And you couldn't go back on the Bay Bridge. And some of the players got on the bus. I remember Canseco had his car. And Esther, his wife, had a skin-tight red leather dress that she was blasted into. And he he drove in full uniform with her in the dress. All They had to go all the way to San Jose and around the bay back to Oakland. And then, you know, we had, I think it was 10 days before we played again. It's it's interesting. I mean, I was in college at the time. But we've had a lot of guys uh, on the show that were there, you know, from Timmy McCarver to to Peter Gammons, to Will Clark. We had Stu on Kevin Mitchell sure. and they all, and they, it's, it's, I always ask the question because I always get a different answer, how they saw it from their perspective. And uh, yeah, just another, another, another historic day in Zagaris's life. Well, what did, what did Mitch tell you? Because he, you know, when, when we finally started the series up again, yeah. After those 10 days, I remember going out, our guys were going to come out for batting practice in about 15 minutes, but I went out early and the giants were kind of finishing up and Mitch was against the cage. And he said, Hey man, I ain't into this. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm just not into it. They waited too long. And I said, I was joking. I said, well, here's something to get you into it. I said, we just had a team meeting. Our guys are going to drill you. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> I said, he said, I don't give a shit. I said, you don't give a shit. He said, let them throw any, any fucking thing they want. He pulled up his shirt. He said, I've been stabbed once and shot twice. Why do I give a fuck if somebody want to hit me with a baseball? And I said, you know, I said, you know what? You're right. <laughs> we, we just had a team meeting. We're going to drill. Yeah, Mitch, he was a piece of I had him as a teammate a uh, little bit in Seattle when I first uh, when I first got there. And then my years in Cincinnati, Mitch came in for. Uh, for a year and and it was our left fielder and uh yeah i got a lot of stories with mitch mitch was uh i'll tell you though the guy could the guy especially the times i played with him i played with him i think 94 yeah 94 in cincinnati we were really good the strike year sure and that and mitch hit about 330 
and he could just, he was one of those guys that could fall out of bed and get a hit. And I'd, I'd look at him. He just, he'd sit on that back leg and I, and I never understood how he could do it. He put all his weight on his back leg. You know, the, the layman hitter thinks, no, you get your weight on your back leg and you really sit back on the ball. Well, that's not what you do because you put too much weight on the back leg. Where does the weight go? It all goes to your front. Yeah. So it's not an even, you know, but yeah, the theory is. So I used to sit there and watch Mitch sit on that back leg and hit and I couldn't do it. I try to put my weight back there. It just goes all to the front, you know, when, when the ball gets in, on its way. But Mitch could do it. And I'd say, how do you just hang on that back leg? It's awesome. And he goes, I don't know. This is just how I hit. But uh, Yeah, he – I mean, you know what? What an athlete. He, Mitch and, was a great player. Well, and coming, and coming out of his background. Yeah. Wow. Yep. I mean, he was, he was no joke. When he – you know, he was with us, I think, three months – and he and Ricky had lockers together. And I always said, I said, you know what? I should just set up a video of you guys, just have it ongoing running. I said, that would be the greatest, like three or four hours ever in sports <laughs> to hear your stories and everything. Ricky, and, oh, Ricky, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you know how we told the stories about not knowing. Ricky was one of those guys. You know, Ricky was a veteran when I was a rookie and just playing against him. I, I couldn't stand Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Then I get into the uh, good friend of mine is Trevor Hoffman and good family friend. And he would tell me, he said, Booney, Ricky's one of the best teammates I ever had when he was in San Diego for a brief stint. I said, really? And then I got an opportunity, as I mentioned earlier with the A's, I did a little work for them in, in 14 and 15. And I was a special assistant and Ricky was a special assistant. So I got to really hang out with him during the day, have lunch with him. One of my favorite guys, I've, I love that man. He's so awesome. I, and, and I do little things, I, you know, because I didn't throw BP and Ricky didn't throw BP. So one day, you know, all the kids are giving me a hard time in the minor league saying, come on, Booney, you, you could throw BP. So I got out there and I threw and I threw and I'm not very good at it, but I got through it. And Ricky was watching me from the side. He goes, man, Boone, if you can do it, Ricky can do it. <laughs> and the next day, Ricky's out there. Ricky is, oh, man, what a, what a wonderful dude and, and what an unbelievable player. But that was playing against him. I thought, who is this guy, especially as a young player? You know, I knew he was great. I knew he was Ricky Henderson. But with all the flash and that wasn't my style. And, and I just always like, ah, Ricky Henderson. Then you'd hear through the grapevine. He's actually a really good teammate. And then you get a chance to spend some some quality time with the guy and you realize everything you're hearing is true like wow great player he had his style you hate to play against him you love having him as a teammate but at the end of the day when we all take our uniforms off he, he's a real real fun guy and a good guy to be around i would always try to either sit next to him in front of him behind him or across the aisle on the team bus or the plane because he was the greatest entertainer ever. I ever. Mean, his stories were unbelievable. And, you know, he, he comes in. I mean, what I've missed the last two or three years because of COVID, where he, he couldn't come into the clubhouse. But he'd always be in the clubhouse, and he's always in card games. And I'd always kid him. I said, look, I know, I know the A's don't pay a whole lot, so you, you're doing this, and the money they don't pay you, you're making up with the card games, fleecing all these guys. Yeah. And I remember the only guy he couldn't beat was Kendry's Morales. And Kendry's played dominoes. He was with us for, I think, about four months. 
And he beat Ricky, I think, three or four days in a row. And at one point, I said, are you hustling him or is he really beating you? He got up and he said, oh, man. He said, I, I ain't hustling him. He said, but you know, them Cuban guys, they, they, all they do is play dominoes. He said, it really ain't fair. <laughs> um, what did we come up with? I was a part of this. Well, I was in this era. Moneyball, the movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. You yeah. being on the ground, you were there in that time. Uh, how truthful is it? You know, I, I think the premise of what they were trying to do worked. And it was kind of like the Queen movie. If you never saw Queen or didn't know the story, it was a great movie. But if you saw Queen, it was kind of light. Um, the original movie was going to have most of the real people in it. And Soderheim got into it with with uh, Amy, whatever her last name was. It was the head of I think Sony at the time. And she pulled the plug on the movie two days before they were starting to film. And had it not been for Brad Pitt, because he was the one that got all the money together to do the movie again. It never would have happened. I thought it was good. I know Art Howe was really pissed. Art called me two days after the movie came out and I hadn't seen it yet. And he was livid because Philip Seymour Hoffman played art. Right. And that's not even a reach. It's like beyond. And art didn't like the way he was depicted. And I thought, you know, Paul DePodesta didn't, they couldn't use his real name. Um, but I thought for the most part, it was pretty close to the way it was. And, you know, my, my thing was that money ball at that point in time, you could get to the playoffs, but you couldn't, you couldn't close the deal because you, once you get into the playoffs and or the world series, you have to have that final one or two people you need to spend money for. Nobody knows that more than you with Seattle. Yeah, you're right. Some teams are built for the 162 to qualify, but then there's then there's teams that are built for that that sprint, and yeah. they've got they've got that weapon that no, those number ones that can beat you in a short in a short series. I think the epitome of it was, well, I've seen a few throughout the years. One of the most impressive things I've ever seen a one man show. One of the most impressive things I've ever seen in sports is uh Bumgardner in in the middle 2000s. Was it 14, 15, 16 somewhere in there? Oh, Kansas, yeah, against Kansas that, City. That post uh, that post city that postseason he had. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Not only did he pitch like Every other day, it seemed like, but he came back on one or no days rest. And I remember Bochi put him in and he'd already had an unbelievable postseason, like a point point oh eight uh, or point eight oh earn run. Well, don't quote me on it, but it was something ridiculous. And they bring him in. And I think Boach is bringing him in to get the lefty out. That sucker with three more innings. Yeah, And I went, he yeah. just pitched yesterday and he pitched three days before that, three days before that. That was one of the most – that was – and also the shilling Randy Johnson, Arizona 2001, that's what a short series team can do. Yeah. They can just throw those guys out after you, and if they're hot, good luck winning a short series against two dominant, you know, aces. Well, you know what, too? There, that year that they won, 
we remember we were up two to nothing going back to Oakland and Yankee players were telling us before game three, Hey, good luck. You guys, you had, what a great season you've had. You deserve to be where you are. And it wasn't like they were hustling us. They really thought, you know, at that point we were the better team and we just kind of fell apart. And, and the, you know, the, the Jeremy Giambi thing, mm-hmm. I felt bad for Jeremy looking back on it. He probably shouldn't have even been running then. Um, and Jeter made a great play when, when something like that happens, that's destiny. That's when, you know, you're going to win. And I thought we had a better team and we should have gone all the way. We didn't the Yankees. Cause remember that was also, that was nine 11, mm-hmm. all the emotion and the way they kept winning those games that Jeter home run on November 1st. I think when they got back to Arizona, I think at a certain point, you just kind of run out of gas, you run out of momentum. And that's as much, I mean, how many Brett, how many times does the best team quote unquote win in any sport? It's so hard. It's so hard. I, I, I'll give you an example. Last year I do a show and we sit down going into the postseason, and, you know, we come up with, with the teams on, on, in the American league and the national league. And we went down and we picked, Hey, why should this team win? You know, obviously I, I, and that's why this, you know, baseball and sport in general is so fascinating because as much experience as I've had in the game, since I was born, that's all I've done is, is play baseball and be around baseball. So you'd think I would probably have a pretty good idea who's going to win. I don't know any better than anybody else because I can break it down on paper and, with my experience and, and me watching teams for a long period of time, I can give you the reason why they should beat another, a, a given team. But if I knew, if I knew for sure who was going to win, well, I'd just go to Vegas and sit in the, sit in the sports book and, and not do anything else because I knew so much last year, we have a round table and I, I forgot who the, who the network was, but we're doing a show on, on postseason teams. Who's going to win, who has the best chance. And they got down to, okay, out of everybody here. And it came to me and it said, who ha- in this group of teams, who has no chance to win the whole thing. And you know who I picked? <laughs> Atlanta Braves. And as I watched that, that postseason go on and on, they caught, they caught lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And I thought, how wrong am I? Not only are they going to get to the World Series, the, the, the little telltale signs I've seen that a team that's gelling just right, they're probably going to win it. And they did. And I just laughed at myself from three weeks earlier being on this prediction show and saying, I, I could have picked any other team, but I picked the Braves as the only team that didn't have a chance. So that's how much I know. Yeah, well, that was the Giants in 2010. After Labor Day, They, I, I thought they had no chance to even get into the playoffs. And yeah. they ended up winning it all. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing. That's why it's, that's why it's so great. You just never, ever know. And anything can happen. In a short series, anything can happen. Um. So you got two worlds. I mean, there's rock and roll world, which for me, you know, I could talk sports all day and all night, but I always do that. The rock and roll stuff that that really intrigues me a lot. Um, Rolling Stones. Give me that. How do do you end up going on tour with the Stones? I mean, those are guys like a Michael Jackson. uh, 
guys, was, guys that are like fake, they're, they're like caricatures. Like I'd never see them at the grocery store. I'd never see Michael Jackson at the, at the grocery store. I don't think I would. No. Well, not unless you were in web Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. But, but that, you, that would be bizarre to me. You know, yeah, it would be, it no, would no. be, it would be the same as seeing any of the stones. Like the, and the stones were kind of always like that. Right. But when I went out with them, it was 1972 and they were already, they were, they were huge then. And I was just starting out as an accomplished rock photographer. But that being said, I thought my shit was so hot. They'd want me to be on the tour with them. And I reached out two or three times and there was just nothing. And, and finally the, the last time I did, they said, look, we, we've got a tour photographer. Um, we don't need anybody else. And so that's when I, I called up Joe Bergman, who was Jagger's uh, girl Friday as, as a British Vogue uh, photo editor, Leo Lerman. And I used a, a British accent and said, you know, just like with the 49ers, I said, we've got this great new photographer, Michael Sigaris. And, We'd like him to go on tour. And, and she said, well, I listen, I really appreciate that. But, you know, we've got a tour photographer. His name is Ethan Russell. Anything you need, we can make make his photos available to you. And I said, no, love, we can't really take handouts now, can we? So, well, maybe next time they tour, we can do a story on him. And she goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's his name again? She said, I'll tell you what, we're opening the, the tour in Vancouver. If you can get him up there, he can shoot us up there. We'll take him on the plane back to San Francisco and then to Los Angeles. But that, that's all you can do like five dates. And that's how I, I got on tour with him. And it was crazy because at that point in time, Robert Frank was, was with them. Um, he was an artist, a filmmaker, a photographer. Robert had done all the pictures for the um, exile on main street album cover. He was, he was Swiss, but he was a, street photographer and independent filmmaker. And he was making a movie that subsequently was called cocksucker blues. And it was that tour, but it was basically backstage stuff. And it was searingly honest to the point where, you know, he had Keith and his sound guy shooting up. They were, they were, you know, getting it on with a high school girl on the plane that they'd picked up. I mean, all kinds of stuff that, you know, if you're a hardcore Stones fan, you're like, wow. And so I got to be friends with his sound man. Um, they had a guy named uh, Freddie Sessler that was Keith's roadie. And Freddie always had a saddlebag. And on the front of the saddlebag, he had a, ba- a plastic baggie with at least three or four ounces of blow. And in the back of the saddlebag, he had another baggie that had China White. At that point, I didn't even know what China White was. And he says, China White, man, it's heroin. He says, look, man, you don't want to go up if you can't come down, right? And there was so much, there was so much coke. And then they had Phil Kaufman, who was kind of their bag man. And he he always had a Halliburton where he had anywhere from ten dollars to $12,000 cash, where police showed up or if we wanted to get into a restaurant that was crowded or closed and, the, you know, the Maitre would come out waving his arms. No, 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 nobody else here. He just opened the Halliburton and start whipping out hundred dollar bills. And, and at a certain point they go, well, wait a minute. How many of there are you? Well, hold on. Well, <laughs> well, 
So it, it was, and, and coming into that from the background of an athlete, I had to act like anything and everything I saw was, yeah, it's pretty, pretty much how my life is every day. Right. <laughs> and it was, I mean, my mind was blown. And I saw other excesses with other groups, not quite like that. Led Zeppelin was right up there, though. It was it was amazing. But it was also, you know, in the context of the time, because the country was being torn apart by the riots, the the war, you know, the war, the Vietnam protests, um, Detroit. After Martin Luther King was killed, Detroit, D.C. were almost burned down. There were riots in San Francisco and L.A. So you had that. You had the music thing changing. You had the drugs. Um, it was it was a crazy, crazy time to be alive. But you know what? It was also fucking exciting because I went into that wanting to not just document it. I wanted to live the life of a rock and roll star and doing what I did when I did it, it was kind of like the same thing. I didn't make any money, but I had free travel to incredible places, beautiful women, free drugs. As I told somebody later, I had all the things if I had money that I would have spent it on. (laughs) (laughs) You got a Jimi Hendrix in there or a Blondie? I was a big Blondie fan. Now, I was just a kid, but I loved Blondie and Jimi Hendrix. Another one of those guys like he's just an avatar like Jimmy. I saw at Winterland. I I, I remember I took my cousin Leon and I brought my camera and we did mushrooms and we ended up right in front of the stage so out there and high, I thought I was Jimi Hendrix. I remember <laughs> looking up, never took a picture. I remember he was like, he had his arms going back and forth and it was like rainbows and, you know, the light show. I mean, what an incredible musician. I mean, he was ahead of his time. He was beyond anything. I'd heard too from friends that were at Monterey. Nobody wanted to go on after him. Because, you know, in the Who, I think the Who ended up going on after him and they didn't want to because they had seen him in London and he was so electric. It was like, hell no, I don't want to. This guy is amazing. And um, yeah, Jimi Hendrix was he was one of a kind. I actually shot Blondie and they had they had they were getting big in New York and they had gone to Japan and so I met him at, at they, they were staying at a hotel right on the edge of the Tenderloin. And I remember meeting him, shooting him up, up on the roof of their hotel. And then we had a town car that the group had. And I took him to Golden Gate Park to the uh, Conservatory of Flowers and shot him there. And my picture of the band with Debbie in the front of them is one of it's, it's in color. It's one of my favorite pictures ever. And, you know, from there they really took off. And the amazing thing is they're still going. Um, They're coming out with a box set in about six months of all their stuff. Chris, who's 
he's always not only been in the band, you know, he and Debbie have been together for fuck 40 years, years now. He's a great photographer and he's got a dynamite body of work. And Blondie is a group you would have loved to have seen in the club scene in New York in the late seventies, early eighties, because all the clubs then they were maybe 200 people and it was so intimate, but to see them at that point in time. And you know, when they were, when they were big, the whole New York scene was unbelievable. You know, there was television, um, there was the Ramones, there was the downtown art scene. Basquiat was, you know, Madonna was just breaking, you know, breaking big. I mean, it was an exciting time to be around. I'm going to give you three scenarios. Uh, you've kind of explained it already with the rock and roll on the rock and roll side, but I'm going to give you 10 minutes before kickoff, big game. Let's call it the Super Bowl. Right. 10 minutes before the first pitch of a World Series. And 10 minutes before, like you said, opening up a big concert, light bulbs, flashlights, you're walking, you're getting ready to go on stage. Biggest difference between the three. Or is there a difference? Is it, you know, something big's about to happen. Yeah, you know, something big's about There's not, I mean, there's certainly differences, but not much. And, and how I gauge it, put yourself in the same scenario, the feeling you have in your body. You know, you, you know, it's like this is really big. Um, and in each one of those scenarios, and like I've done 42 Super Bowls, I've done like 12 World Series and I don't know how many concerts. But when you're right there, you almost want to turn to your best friend or, you know, whoever you're closest to and look at them and go, is this not fucking incredible? This is the most incredible feeling. And this is why this is why I'm alive. This is why I do this. This is this is everything. This, the way I feel right now, in any of those three moments, this transcends any money I could be paid for doing this. This is the reason to be. Really and that's cool. yeah, that's that's kind of how it is. I know you got a book coming out in October, uh, Field of Play. Tell me about it and where can where can we pick it up? Um, it's going to be out, I think, October 4th. You can pick, pick it up. It'll be on Amazon. I want to say it'll be bookstores everywhere, but you know, after the pandemic, there aren't many bookstores everywhere <laughs> to pick it up at. <laughs> but it'll, it'll be at bookstores. You can order it on at on Abrams, on Amazon, um, Cameron Books. What it is, it's a compilation of 60 years of my shooting the NFL. And a lot of the, and, and again, it's from a player's point of view. There's, there's some great game action stuff, but there's also a lot of behind locker room stuff. Um, there'll be some shots of, some guys getting shot up. Not, and I, I'm, I'm not doing that to be exploitive or to be sensational. Um, I want this to be a player's experience. And this is part of what they go through. There'll be bench shots. They'll also, like in the rock and roll book, 
there'll be some great stories. I had Steve Cassidy, who went along on a number of trips with me for the NFL, for Pro Magazine back in the 70s. Steve's a great writer. Um, he was also he, – uh, he was Madden's uh, – scriptwriter for his radio stuff and ghosted a book for John, very knowledgeable about football. We have a lot of very crazy, exciting stories. He writes much like Hunter Thompson wrote, and the book and the writing feels like that era. And it starts out with my stuff. You know, when I first shot the first few football pictures, I was 10 and 11 years old at College Pacific. And I've got things like that in there. I've got a lot of the stuff that I had when I had my, ma making my own credentials in the early 60s, both at Keysar Stadium and then when I was in school back in D.C. both in Baltimore. Um, and then stories of players. I've got there's I've got a picture of uh, Al Cowlings and O.J. playing backgammon in the back of the plane on the way to Atlanta in December of 79, which was going to be OJ's last game ever. And I was shooting it for, for both the team, but for the NFL too. And they're playing backgammon and they're talking shit and I'm taking pictures. And at one point, AC, who, I mean, if people forget, AC and OJ, they were friends from the time they were junior high school all the way through. AC was the guy that was driving the white Ford Bronco when the police were after him. So they're playing backgammon and AC goes, Hey man, remember that time we ran into Jim Brown when we were kids and you told him you're going to break all your records. And he goes, yeah. And I, I went, fuck yeah. I remember that. And AC looked up at me like, what? And juice didn't even look up. He goes, Z you so full of shit. I said, it was August, 1962. I said, the Browns had come in to play the 49ers for the last preseason game. I was in high school. My brother and I were at the game. I was waiting at the buses outside of Keysar Pavilion after the game to see if I could talk to him. Jim Brown comes out with Bobby Mitchell, blows everybody off. He cuts across the parking lot. And, and so we follow him. And he, they go into a donut shop right at the corner of Stanion and Frederick. And they're ordering two dozen donuts to take on the, on the plane going back to Cleveland. And there are these three kids. They looked like maybe junior high school t-shirts standing together. And one guy leans over to his friends and then takes about two steps over to his left, hits Jim Brown in the arm. Jim Brown kind of looks down and he goes, Hey man, someday I'm going to break all your records. And Jim Brown kind of looks at him and goes, huh? Yeah. And AC looked up at me and goes, Oh shit. And juice looked up and goes, fuck man, you're everywhere. So about an hour later, I'm in the back of the plane in the galley talking to one of the flight attendants, and he comes up and he goes, Z, how'd you know that was me? I said, fuck, Juice, I'd forgotten that ever happened until you told the story. And it just all clicked. So I've got that picture and that story, and then the next page, I've got a full-page shot of him walking alone in uniform in the tunnel with his head down, holding the ball from his last carry. And I, I mean, the book is filled with stuff like that. Um, the catch, um, Carl Eller, you know, when, when the Raiders played the, the Vikings Super Bowl 11 in, uh, January of 
1977. So I shoot that game. Fast forward to the 77 season. At the end of the 77 season, the Vikings and the Raiders play the last game of the season in Oakland. They're both not as good as they were, not going to the Super Bowl. The Vikings are getting old right before the half. Clarence Davis, they they pinch Carl Eller in, and Clarence Davis sweeps in for, like, I think a 40-yard touchdown. So I'm on the 35, right on the edge of the Vikings bench. And the team, their defense is coming off the field, and their team photographer turns to me and he says, uh, boy, our defense is getting old. And I said, old? They're fucking dinosaurs, man. And he looked at me really weird, kind of backed away. I thought, what? I turned around. Carl Ellers literally right against my arm. So I just put the camera up. I've got, you know, with a wide angle lens, took a picture. And the next thing I knew I was on the ground. Now I knew there was no trap door there and I hadn't felt anything, but he obviously just decked me. And you know, when I, so I, I jumped up and to diffuse things. And I said, Hey, big guys, you hurt your hand. And now he went fucking crazy. And Bob Lee like puts his arms around me, their backup quarterback, and swung me around and goes, see, are you out of your fucking mind? And now the half ends, so they go off the field, and a bunch of photographers came up, and they said, hey, man, we saw that. You can sue him. I said, I'm not suing him. Fuck, if I'm him, I probably would have hit me, too. I When I went home and next day processed everything, there's the two pictures before. It's me putting, you know, him looking down and looking at me. And then the next picture, it looks black with a little bit of white at the at the front, and that was his fist. So I thought, this is great. This is perfect. I've got those two pictures and the black frame and then that story. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a little levity in the book as well. Yeah, that's, a, that's a lot of history in that book. What's the one shot you never got? What's the white whale? Fuck. I wish there was just one shot I never got. Um, there, you know, l- listen, there's probably a lot of shots I've never gotten. I remember I wanted to do, after the Ravens beat the Niners in the Super Bowl on that, you know, the ball that Colin overthrew uh, Mike in the end zone, I come into the locker room and it's it's like death. And I see our GM is literally lying on his stomach with his arms out on the stairs. And I wanted to take, I wanted to take the picture and our PR guy said, no, don't. And I thought, fuck, you know, if, if I wasn't working for the team, I would have said, fuck it. I would have taken it anyway. Cause, but then when, when you're with the team, there's, there's some pictures you, you just can't take or you won't take. Um, and people say, well, if you know, if you're a professional, you take the picture anyway. And I said, not necessarily. I said, you know, I know Abaddon shot his father in the bed when he was dying of cancer. And I said, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I said, each person has to decide. I, I saw somebody had a picture of Joey Giardello when he was a little kid holding his dog who had been run over. And I said, for me, I couldn't shoot my dad when he was dying of cancer in the bed. And there are some pictures for whatever reason, especially if you're very close to it, maybe out of respect for the player 
or the individual you don't take. Um, Jimmy Page. Jimmy was in town. They were doing a big benefit concert. Uh, Ronnie Lane, one of the uh, faces, was dying of... It wasn't... uh, it was a Lou Gehrig disease, but it was something like that. So it was Clapton, Page, Jeff Beck, Charlie Watts. Everybody was here. But Jimmy, at that point in time, was really strung out. And I remember coming downstairs from Clapton's room, and I see Jimmy sitting in a chair. It's late afternoon in in, in the hotel. The backlight from a window is like, it looks like he almost has a halo, but he hasn't shaved in about four days. And he's, he had a beautiful like white linen shirt, but it was stained. And he had dried spit all around his mouth. And I could see he had just a crust of, of Coke on his nose. And we were talking and I remember I was kneeling down and I had the camera and I started to take the picture and he goes, no, man, no, please, not now. And I said, okay, Jimmy, but I said, right now, you look like a fucking prince in exile. You look beautiful. Never took it because we're friends and I know him. To this day, I wish I could have been invisible and taken it. And he was in town, what, three years ago, and we talked about it again. And he'd forgotten that it ever happened. But that would have been an unbelievable picture. And I wish I would have taken that. Mike Zagaris. What a life, baby. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot we covered. It's pretty awesome and, and unbelievable. The the things you, you see and, and the things you've gotten to shot and the things you're still shooting, go get Mike's book in October, October 4th field of field of play. There's going to be a lot of cool shots in that. Uh, Amazon, as far as we know right now, because of the pandemic, there's no more bookstores. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's, it's Mike. I appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. This was, Moody, this it's was been really too cool. long, man. I yeah. can't wait to see you again. This was great catching up. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, Dano, gentlemen. I guess, Michael, do you have a Michael Jordan story by any chance? <laughs> you know what, Dan? You're going to have to go to Bill Smith for that. Yeah. Oh, the Bears, okay. the Bulls, and the White Sox. <laughs> it was a, shot, it was a shot in the dark. It eclipses anything I could tell you. Mike, don't, 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 don't mind, Dan. It was a shot in the dark. I don't know. He's, you may he's have a read Chicago it freak. Hey, you know what? I don't, but I have. I have a picture of Jesus in Galilee. Not many people have seen. <laughs> so you do have a picture of Michael Jordan. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. That was good. That was good. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We really appreciate it. That was great. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It was a gas w- w- hanging with you guys. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 
I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.